Sometimes when newcomers come to forest monasteries, whether it's in the West or in Thailand, often they're struck by the often the lack of explanation, lack of information given on the technical details of practice, particularly meditation. Often there's a bit of culture shock, because our culture more and more is based around information, learning, absorbing data, information, being able to communicate that to others in different ways. When Ajahn Chah went to the West, one of his first reflections on Western culture was that people worship knowledge, information. <coughs> Almost in a superstitious way, they assume the more information they have about things, the safer, more secure they'll be, the better off they'll be. So often in a forest monastery, practitioners get fr frustrated sometimes. They want to know more technical details, try and give them some kind of head start or quick fix practice of meditation. Often our uh, desire for knowledge and attachment to knowledge is also mixed with um, desire for results, a clear, direct plan of how we'll practice and how quick we'll get results. Again, this is almost like something superstitious that we often we just build up plans in our mind, ideas, imagination, based on what knowledge we have. And we try and assess it, try and work out how long it would take for us to crack samadhi, or gain some kind of insight gain some tangible progress in the practice. We often give ourselves time limits. In practice, it just adds to our problems. Start to put pressure on ourselves. And again, just get caught up in the imagination, comparing, planning, and often laying the ground for disappointment despair, discouragement. It's not that there's no role for information and knowledge in our practice. All of our teachers have studied the suttas, the Vinaya, 
ask questions, discuss Dhamma and so on. So there's a role for that. But they all point out it's the role is the information, the knowledge you gain, you use to motivate you in the practice. It's not an end in itself. It's a causal factor to help train the mind to understand the Dhamma. But then we have to learn through direct experience to see and know the Dhamma as it is. Not just through memory or theorizing. So in the forest monasteries when we come into them there's a lot of time we're not actually told all the time, do this, do that, go here, go there. There's a general instructions, what the routine is, ways of doing things. And then we're left to learn and practice for ourselves much of the time. And it's up to us to develop the devotion to the practice, sincerity keep bringing up fresh good intentions to practice, to motivate ourselves. We also have to make the link or the jump between the theoretical knowledge and the direct knowledge that comes through this training. And when you become a bhikkhu in the early days, often a lot of your time is just spent up with simple, obvious tasks like learning to wear your robe so it doesn't fall off your shoulder all the time. Learning to look after your bowl, not drop it or bash it. Learning to look after the, your kuti. Learning to keep the vinaya in different ways, just developing basic composure, mindfulness in daily life. And although we're sometimes reminded what to do, most of the time we just have to learn this by ourselves. We watch, we listen, we learn. But over time you might appreciate how this actually brings up mindful where awareness, clear comprehension and develops some initial wisdom, direct knowledge of one's own body and mind as it is in the present moment, mindfulness and daily life. It might be that periodically we go back to the scriptures, the suttas, the vinaya, the Dhamma teachings to refresh, deepen our knowledge and then we practice some more. It's not necessarily wrong to ask questions or read books or discuss Dhamma but we also have to over time reflect on whether it's actually leading us to more peace, more understanding sometimes it can even lead to more doubt 
misunderstanding, conflict in our own minds. So we have to be honest and look, see what the results of all of this is. We have to have the patience to keep learning these basic things, how to not always follow our moods. So we get up in the morning, we come to meetings, we do things according to the Vinaya, according to the rules of the monastery. But all the time we're developing awareness and mindfulness of our own state of mind. We're looking and we're learning. Ajahn Chah himself said when he was a young monk, he spent a lot of time studying, he was very energetic, had a lot of faith, a lot of, put a lot of effort into studies because he was in a study monastery. That was what was taught. But over time you could see there's something lacking. There wasn't much emphasis on the Vinaya training or the practice of meditation. So most of the monks didn't last very long. And even the ones that were there are often not so restrained in different ways. So with a number of different factors that led him on to go out wandering, looking for a meditation teacher. It's also spurred on by the insight into impermanence where his father died and just contemplating the deeper meaning of the teachings and of his ordination. So he went off, we say, on Tudong, wandering for maybe ten years before he settled down and began practicing at Wat Bapong. They say over that period of time, his friends family noticed how he changed, you know, probably when he was a young monk, just like everyone else talk a bit too much, he's a very lively, sociable kind of person, a very popular monk. He obviously had a lot of metta and a lot of natural wisdom. But over his years practicing as a Majjhima and a Tera, he also learned to be more restrained. Lumpur Ginri, one of his teachers, even pointed out that maybe that's something he has to work on be careful not to talk too much. It can become an obstacle to the practice. So people notice, say, when he went off to, on Tudong and came back home the first time, he was much more restrained, composed than before. He'd met some meditation teachers and learned some of the practices of a forest monk. Obviously, if we're only in a monastery for a short time, well, we'll definitely gain something from the experience. But if we really want to gain deep results, well, better to set aside <clears throat> notions of time and this kind of limitation we put on ourselves, saying, I've got to do this much in this amount of time. Trying to follow some kind of plan that we think is right in our head. Maybe set that aside more and just 
take it in a more natural way and just try to keep learning from experience. That famous teacher who died yesterday, Lumpur Kun, some of his reflections people often like to ask him because they knew he was a good meditator. They had deep samadhi, psychic powers, great metta and so on. They'd often ask him, oh, Lumpur, Lumpur, what do you see when you sit with your eyes closed? What do you know? He said something actually very similar to Ajahn Chah. Said, I actually learn from when I'm, my eyes are open. Said he sits with his eyes closed just to make his mind content and feel calm and at ease. Which is his way of saying practicing some developing samatha samadhi. But when he feels at ease, then he opens his eyes and contemplates in all postures, not just sitting with his eyes closed, whether he's standing, walking, lying down. He contemplates. You might say something like, contemplates just to see rupa is just rupa. Nama is just nama. Physical phenomena are just physical phenomena. Mental phenomena are just mental phenomena. You might say something like that quite simply. <coughs> Using the mindfulness, the steadiness of mind from his meditation to contemplate the nature of phenomena. Contemplate to see all phenomena arise, pass away. Because of that, they're unstable, they're unsatisfactory. Because they arise from causes, pass away, and they're not a self, shouldn't be taken as self. We can expand on this from the books, from the teachings. But in practice, it's maybe just a very direct observation of the way things are. Physical phenomena are just that much. Mental phenomena, just that much. As we're practicing, we're learning to bring the mind to see truth, know truth directly. We're breaking through our delusions, wrong perceptions, wrong grasp of the truth. Sometimes you'd say in very simple terms, like when talking about the four foundations of mindfulness, when you contemplate the body, just contemplate to see the repulsiveness of a human body, the unattractiveness of it, to break through the delusion of beauty, an attraction, an identification with the superficial appearance of the body. <coughs> Keep contemplating to see the unattractiveness of it. 
and break that delusion with mindfulness, with insight. When contemplating Vaitana, to contemplate to see the dukkha, the suffering of Vaitana, even pleasure, pleasant feeling, is a cause for suffering because it causes desire and attachment, but it doesn't last. So we're constantly chasing, chasing after pleasant feelings that can never satisfy us. Painful feelings are obviously dukkha, but all feeling is conditioned, it changes, it's not reliable, it cannot give us lasting peace, happiness. With the Satipatthana of the mind, just to contemplate the impermanence of mental states, where they're wholesome, unwholesome, they come and they go, they rise, they pass away. They're never there for that long. They don't last. With the Dhamma phenomena, then it's all phenomena are not self. Phenomena are just phenomena, objects, just objects of mind. Physical, mental, wholesome, unwholesome, not self. Obviously the suttas and the teachings expand on this. But in practice often we are using that foundation and just reducing it back to direct awareness in the present moment of our experience, things arising, passing away. Noticing the unattractiveness of this body and the things as they come into contact with the body and they get soiled. Noticing feeling and how it constantly changing, dying away and so on. Ajahn Chah used to say we practice, in the end you can't really separate samatha and vipassana as you practice, you know, they're two sides of the same thing. It's the one mind that we're training. But obviously this, at different times you might say we might emphasize one or the other. So generally the pattern is we're developing mindfulness in all four postures and then particularly in sitting and walking meditation we're developing continuous mindfulness so that sense of calm, stillness, contentment is there. The mind becomes firmer to develop into samadhi. And then we contemplate. And they'd ask Ajahn Chah, well, when should we contemplate? Well, when your mind's peaceful, he'd answer. If it's peaceful enough, then contemplate. As you're contemplating, if the mind starts to get lost again in its moods, mental states, different sensations, feelings coming up, if it gets lost, well, come back to basic mindfulness practice, back to developing samatha. The mind's not calm, then you can't see anything, you can't contemplate. So we tend to have this dynamic 
back and forth, calming the mind, contemplating, calming the mind, contemplating. But for how long, when and how, well that largely up to us, learning that skill of observing, bringing up mindfulness. Often the books and the knowledge can't help that much as we're practicing. We have to also just look at what's going on right now from moment to moment. Is the mind peaceful or not? Where is the mind? Often it's drifting off into sleepiness or mental proliferation. We're learning that and often it's not in the formal meditation that things will come up that reinforce delusions or trigger off a whole series of different kinds of mental proliferation, moods and so on. It's often in what we call daily life that things happen. So we have to be on our guard, practicing all the time. It's not just when we're formally sitting, walking, necessarily the insight arises or that we direct our mind to bring up mindfulness. Again, if you look at the lives of the, the many teachers that we're fortunate enough to have and know about, you often important moments in their practice came not always when they were sitting or walking meditation. It could be when different situations arose that challenged them or tempted them or provoked them in some way. And they would see some see through some delusion or see some kilesa arising and manage to contemplate it, see it as an icha dukkha anatta and abandon it. Rajan Chah, his practice during those years wandering, a lot of it was just about basic things like requisites, food, and dealing with feelings of loneliness, homesickness, dealing with illness when often not much medication, medical help available, learning to be very patient with weather conditions hot, cold, wet, dry. They're all very ordinary stuff, but it's the food for contemplation. But to contemplate things and see them as Dhamma, then we also have to develop this ability to maintain mindfulness in all postures, contemplate, then go back to developing mindfulness, maintaining mindfulness, contemplate back and forth like this. Sometimes he would use very ordinary experiences, like say when he was ill, feeling sorry for himself. Obviously he had a lot of dukkha waiting there, not sure what to do, but you know, just seeing a deer walk past and realizing, well, animals don't have doctors and hospitals and they can manage. Maybe he could manage 
because at that time he didn't have access to medical help when he was ill. Just enough to inspire him to be more patient and carry on at a time when he's probably very disillusioned, worn out. Other times he had to be on his guard for jealousy and desire for, because he could speak well, the desire for getting popular with lay people, wanting to have lay supporters, people looking after him, people taking an interest in him. He could see that was a problem, so when, particularly when he was staying in Ayutthaya, central Thailand. A lot of people would come to see him, listen to the Dhamma. He could see himself enjoying that scenario. So he made a clear plan to leave the monastery he stayed, what Chai Mungkon there, I think, two vases. But he also saw this. He needs to move on because he's still forming attachment to people and to that. Being a teacher, he wasn't quite ready to settle down and be a teacher yet. The famous story of the one more wealthy lady who wanted really became infatuated with him, wanted to come and listen to Dhamma every day, make offerings to him. At the end of us, I wanted to take him on a trip to see other monasteries, other teachers, because Ajahn Chah did like to visit teachers. She wanted to hire a car and take him off. But he could also see it's almost like she wanted to own him. It's a very good offer that she made to take him, sort of sponsor this trip. But at the same time, you could see if he gave into that, he'd lose something, some of his own equanimity, aloofness. He'd be giving in to a kalesa. So he thought, well, that's more important than giving in to the offer from the layperson. So he refused. And he'd been teaching the lady for quite a while, so got to know her. So she was a bit confused, disappointed. Why has he refused this offer? She knew he wanted to go to different monasteries. But he couldn't think of a more diplomatic way to answer. He just said, she said, why don't you, why won't you take up this offer? And all he could say was, because I don't want to making it very clear. The woman's very, probably a bit hurt, shocked. That was the Dhamma Vinaya speaking. At that moment, at that time, he obviously felt that was what was needed. What, what, do, you, what do you call that? Do you call that Samatha or Vipassana? It's obviously different factors arising at that moment, contemplating in that situation, but both the firmness of mind, not to give in to a kalesa, the vinaya, the sati, the sampajanya, and the wisdom, the panya. In dealing with kalesas, often it's like that. It's not something you can get in a textbook, lay out on a page and analyze and learn, even though you might have done that, and that's my may be quite useful as a foundation, but in the actual course of the practice, you know, the textbook won't be open at that moment when different kalesas arise. It has to be sati, sampajanya and panya helping each other. 
sorting out what the right solution is to a problem, particular delusion or attachment that's arisen. Obviously Ajahn Chah himself was good at that. You know, we might speculate and say, oh, we've probably been doing it for many lifetimes. And just going on what we know from this lifetime, well, he obviously was very good because he's very dedicated to the training, to practicing training his mind to give up kilesas, greed, anger, delusion in all its forms. Sometimes when the mind is very peaceful then we get particular insights come up. Sometimes it is when we're meditating, sometimes just after. A very common one is you've been meditating, sitting and walking, say like on a night like tonight, one prat. Sit and walk, maybe just take a, a brief rest and the mind goes to sleep, but it's been practicing a lot, so the mindfulness is stronger, and the mind is more peaceful than usual, but then just as falling asleep, then a very vivid dream can arise. Sometimes it's like that. So Ajahn Chah himself had that. When he was at a place called Suan Gloi, a very poor part of Ubon province, Gantarak district, a monastery that became synonymous with suffering for many monks later on, because although it was a place Ajahn Chah obviously got great results in his practice, it was considered a very difficult place to live, very hot, poor, poor food, poor accommodation and so on, difficult place to live. But Ajahn Chah spent some time there not long before he started Bobopong. He had those kind of premonitions, three nights in a row, practicing, sitting, walking, and then just as he fell asleep, each night a very vivid dream came up. We were talking about that the other night at tea. I was just trying to remember. I think the first night he had one was of somebody throwing an egg into his hands. This egg cracked and two little chicks came out and the chicks turned into two little boys and someone gave them the name these little boys Ajahn Chah was a monk in the dream where he had to look after them kind of bring them up and one of them Buntong got dysentery which in those days in Thailand, dysentery could easily be fatal. Gives you uncontrollable diarrhea and you become dehydrated, you get terrible fevers, headaches, stomach pains, and often people die. So Bun Tong, this one little boy, died. But Bun Tham survived. He said that dream had great significance for him. It's not long before he started Wat Bupong. He never explained to anyone else exactly what he thought it meant. He said it was very significant. The next night I had a dream 
Oh, he was pregnant. Again, he was still a monk, but he was pregnant, very pregnant. And he was invited to a house for a dana. There were some other monks up top, the way the northeast Thailand houses are, you tend to have a living room up top. But because he's so pregnant, his stomach so heavy, the lay people invited him to sit downstairs for his meal. Gave him food, looked after him, and then he gave birth as a monk. And gave birth to this, again, this young boy, baby boy. And there was no mess. It was a very smooth birth, no pain and no mess, no kind of blood, blood or placenta or anything. Just suddenly this boy had been born and his stomach shrank back down. So he contemplated in the dream, oh, this, it's possible for birth, you know, like the Buddha's birth, you know, to be smoother, cleaner than the average human birth. It's possible. And then this boy had to, again, look after him. And so the lay people brought food, really good quality food. And remembering in those days, Northeast Thailand was very poor. And food, good quality food was hard to come by. But they bought good quality food, helped him, offered to him. And they took the young boy away to look after, feed him. Then they brought it back to Ajahn Chah. Gave, gave the boy, having been fed and looked after, brought back to Ajahn Chah, put him in his hands. At the end of the dream, the boy slipped out of his hands. And he didn't give any meaning, he just said it's very significant. But often teachers say giving, a monk giving birth is like giving birth to students, disciples. And Lumpur Chaya later he became an Upajaya, ordained many, many monks. And those monks have all been looked after and still to this day, and we still have very good support because we're disciples of Ajahn Chah. His reputation, his training has allows us to practice around the world. And the baby slipped out of his hands, perhaps that means in the end Lumpur Chaya himself is not going to look after every monk, <clears throat> he ordains them and then lets them go off to practice. The last dream I think was the third night in a row, he had a dream, he went up on a beautiful mountain top, he had a novice monk in attendance and he went up to the top of this mountain very steep, very high, and it was a very beautiful, peaceful, serene place up. There was a nice seat set up for him with a canopy over a seat for him to sit, eat, meditate. But they didn't stay up there, they went back down, halfway down the mountain, there was a place where the lay people came to offer food. So he sat there for his meal, and his relatives, his mother, his auntie, his relatives all brought some of the best food uh, which was chicken and duck in those days. So, 
talk to them. It's all very happy. It's a very happy atmosphere. The people had great respect for him, great faith, and they're all very happy in there, bringing forward good quality foods. So He's just talking about that with them. Again, he never explained exactly what the meaning of this dream was, just that it's very significant for him. Sometimes they compare the top of the mountain with Nibbana, reaching Nibbana. And obviously as Ajahn Chah, we have faith that he reached Nibbana, but he also had great compassion. So he taught many monks, lay people, brought out the best in people, brought out their faith so they'd come forward to make offerings, support the Sangha, and then practice, keep the precepts, listen to the Dhamma, meditate. Perhaps it was some kind of premonition of that. All those three dreams, he never explained to others exactly the meaning. But he said for him, they're very powerful. Obviously they came as a result of the practice. He said his reflection when he had those dreams, he called them Sabawa Dhamma. Sabawa means just that which exists in nature, phenomena or essence. The essence of the truth or nature. That's his way of saying, speaking in a way, saying they're not self. So it's not like sense of self formed in his mind about these dreams, that he's some kind of something special, or somebody with a lot of merit or anything like that. He obviously is the clarity of his insight, the stillness of his mind, and he can contemplate the dreams without any bias or attachment. He just said they're just sabawa dhamma. So sometimes in the practice, when we're meditating or even falling asleep, Sabawa Dhamma can arise. Enmities or reflections come up, insights come up that may have a superficial appearance, you know, like his dreams, they had people and places in them, but they're pointing to a much deeper Dhamma than Dhamma of the mind, letting go of different kilesas and the purity of the mind. But obviously these are things that happen through causes and conditions. They're not something you can force. Again, it's not something you can read or theorize and discuss and then make happen in your mind, in your practice. It comes as a natural result, a natural progress of developing sila, samadhi, panya, maintaining right view, contemplating the Dhamma, developing the practice in a correct way. These are some of the results that might come. So as ever, we have to go back and look at the cause for the Dhamma to arise. We have to be the one creating the causes and the conditions for the Dhamma to arise. We have to put effort into our own practice of the Vinaya, developing mindfulness, learning to meditate, learning to compose ourselves, contemplate the Dhamma. This is the way we can find progress, find more peace, more understanding. So 
leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs> 